When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Detectives say the 32-year-old cold case was cracked with the help from a deck of cards. On each card, a different cold case, whether it be a wanted person, a missing person, or an unsolved murder. Well, investigators say a prison inmate saw the victim's face on one of the cold case playing cards and then tipped investigators off. The Bernalillo County Sheriff's Department had the cards made up at the suggestion of a former cold case detective. I'm Tommy Ray. Cold case card program I started here in Polk County has since grown across the U.S. This is not your ordinary deck of playing cards. These cards contain 52 unsolved cases, and with every hand that's played, the stakes are unusually high. They've been dealt to inmates across the nation, and investigators are hoping their tips will stack the odds in favor of the House. Now it's your turn. These victims have been dealt an unfair hand, and it's up to you to deal justice. Somebody, somewhere, has information that could be investigators' ace in the hole. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 5 of Dealing Justice. I'm Jennifer Dubasek. And I'm Lori Jennings. And today, we're exploring the Tina Milford case. She was a hardworking 23-year-old young mother living in Anderson, South Carolina. The abduction and murder of Tina Milford from her job at the Little Cricket convenience store happened in 1983. And although the years and even decades have passed, the burn to find Tina's killer still rages on with her family, who continue to believe they will see justice for Tina. Her sister Anne has been instrumental in keeping Tina's story alive. And her involvement within the Crime Stoppers community and alongside people like Tom Lucas, who actually led the Cold Case Playing Card Initiative in South Carolina, are crucial to seeing justice for Tina. Here, Tom Lucas shares his personal motivation for spearheading the Cold Case Playing Card Initiative. My name is, is Tom Lucas, and uh, I got involved in Crime Stoppers and the card playing program, uh, mainly because my son was a victim of a quadruple murder in South Carolina on November 6, 2003, in Chesney, South Carolina. In the place of business, somebody came in and basically executed four employees, or the owner and three, three people, and the case really went cold pretty quick. It is known as the Superbike Motorsport Quadruple Murder. I was in Florida at a seminar, probably in 2008, I'd say, and uh, watching TV or on the news on cold case playing cards. And I looked at that and I thought, wow, what an idea. And I told my wife, we're doing this in South Carolina. I don't care how we do this. That's fantastic. So 
being I was involved in Crime Stoppers, I got the momentum build up. I had a lot of help from the people within the prison system. I'd say in the first couple of years, we had either solved or helped solve like 10 or 12 cases that we had input at. That was kind of how it got started, why it got started. That's another tool that people can use to, to gain information. You never know when that piece of information is going to come in that you may not know it, but a detective may have something linking together that it has been working on or she's been working on. And, and you know, you can get some answers. You don't yeah. get your loved one back. Never happens, but at least you feel like you did all you could do to help help get some resolution and some justice. Ultimately, Tom and his family did get resolution and justice for his son, Brian Lucas. But the source who brought the information to light would shock the nation and would ultimately lead back to Todd Kolhep, a now convicted serial killer. Kolhep was a registered sex offender and former real estate agent who was arrested November 3, 2016, as the Anderson Police and Spartanburg County Sheriff's Office were investigating a missing persons case. They discovered 30-year-old Caleb Brown of Anderson chained like a dog inside a metal storage container on Kolhep's property. Kayla told investigators that Todd confessed to the killings while holding her captive. Two days later, Kolhep described for investigators how and why he swept through Superbike Motorsports to kill Chris Sherbert, Beverly Guy, Brian Lucas, and Scott Ponder so many years earlier. The death or disappearance of a loved one by the hands of another is traumatic to say the least. It can and often does suffocate the joy out of the survivors. We are grateful to those like Anne and Tom Lucas who are advocates for the voiceless. As always, our goal is to lay out the timeline and pertinent details that may jog someone's memory. We would love to see the day where there are no faces to put on the cold case playing cards. But until that day comes, we will continue working with Tommy Ray and telling these stories in pursuit of dealing justice. It's time for us to solve these cases one card at a time. Help us deal justice for Tina Milford. This is Episode 5, the Tina Milford case, 10 of Hearts, South Carolina Deck. This episode of Dealing Justice brings us to Anderson, South Carolina, where even the sweetest Southern accents can't hide the bitter truth. 23-year-old Tina Marie Hunter was born in 1960 on New Year's Day. She grew up in Anderson, South Carolina, and was the daughter of James and Janie Hunter, and the middle child of four siblings. Growing up, the Hunter family led a traditional Southern lifestyle, where church and family were their entire world. It was a simple life, especially by today's standard. I had a chance to talk to Tina's big sister, Anne, and she gives us a taste of their sweet Southern life. My name is Anne Hunter Hollinsworth, or Dolores Anne Hunter Hollinsworth. I am Tina's sister, her oldest sister. There was four of us kids. Tina was the middle, I guess, the middle child, the third child of the four. Three girls and one boy. She was born in 1960, January the 1st, 1960. She was uh, a New Year's baby born, but uh, she was the second born on that day instead of the first. She was born in Anderson, South Carolina. She was, um, 
I guess, a little dynamite or whatever you call it. <laughs> she was smart and witty and musical. We grew up in a good Christian Church of God home, and our parents took us to church. Tina and I would sing, and I would play the piano together in church and sing. What was your favorite song to sing with her together? Did you guys have a favorite? How Great Thou Art. How great thou art. How great thou art. She was smart. She can make friends easily. She's blonde hair and blue eyes. Skinny. We were all skinny back in those days, you know, uh, <laughs> not like we are nowadays. <laughs> it was it was good back then. And Tina, she would pick up a rock and she'll pet it like pet. And wow. she would call it her pet rock. <laughs> and she would sell it to somebody for a quarter. I just remember, you know, just certain odd things, you know, like that. So she was, you know, she was always... Um, Active and creative, and uh, um, I was sew, and then she would, you know, try to help me sew or whatever, and make our dresses for Christmas or Easter. And one year we all got dolls for Christmas, and Dana and Nacy, my youngest sister, they got the dolls. I don't know if you remember them or not. It's the dolls that the hair grows, and you know, you had to turn the little knob in the back of them. Yes. Tina had a blonde-headed one, and Nisi had a brown-headed one because Nisi was brown-headed. They both got one of those, and I still have those dolls. Anne's description of their life sounds like a scene straight out of the Little House on the Prairie. The city of Anderson sits at the northwest corner of South Carolina and is an hour away from the natural beauty of the Blue Ridge Mountains. It's not a small town necessarily, but it sure feels like someone forgot to tell them that. Much of the economy revolves around manufacturing, and people here are not afraid to work hard and get dirty. And back in the 70s, when Ann and Tina were growing up, there was not a worry in the world. We didn't have to worry at all back then. We left our doors unlocked. We lived on Lineswood Drive in Anderson, right there on the corner, and we had bicycles. We ride our bicycles to the little store down there and get us a bar of candy at the time, you know, but bar candy was a luxury. Tina and my younger sister, they both were candy strippers at the time at the hospital. Tina was the smart one of us. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you always got a sibling that's a little bit smarter than the other sibling. <laughs> yeah. Tina was considered the smart one of the family, but college wasn't always the natural next step for a girl in the 70s and especially not a traditional Southern girl from a working-class family. With little opportunity for a career, you did just what everybody else did. You got married. I don't remember the complete date of when she got married or anything, um, but it was about maybe two or three years after high school, if that long. She got married at home like I did, and so she, she just had a home wedding. The same house my parents lived in or my mother lived in until I sold it about three years ago. Enter Tina's husband, Tony Milford. Anne was married also at this point, and eventually she moved with her husband to Florida. She admits she really didn't know Tony that well, but there were always problems. It's hard to imagine a time before social media, but it did exist, and it wasn't that long ago. 
It was possible in the early 80s to keep your problems private. And in a good Southern marriage, it was not only possible, it was expected. You know, you don't try to interfere with each other's married life. And if you've got squabbles or something like that, you try not to interfere. And I know it went home. I did live across the street from her, not far from my parents' house. And uh, her and her husband had some squabbles. But, uh, and of course, you know, we did too. But I didn't intervene because, you know, I didn't think it was any of my business. It was uh, kind of a, a tough time at the time. The young couple had split up several times over the course of their marriage. And those around Tina knew it was a tumultuous relationship, to say the least. During their marriage, they had a baby girl named Crystal. The young family was struggling in every way possible. And while Tina had moved out several times before, her friends and family say she had finally had enough. I don't know what was going on in their personal life and what caused her to get a divorce from him. The only thing I could suggest is that they quit loving each other or bickering too much or any anything that anybody wants to get a divorce for. So I don't know what the circumstances was or whatever of the divorce decree. It's hard to explain that and to know what really happened because she was already gone. I couldn't ask her. In talking with Anne, it was obvious that Tina and Tony did not have a good marriage, and Tina was finally done. So she had filed for divorce on the grounds of physical cruelty and was living with her parents while she saved up enough money to live on her own with her and her 18-month-old daughter, Crystal. In May of 1983, Tina had filed for divorce and was working at the Little Cricket convenience store in South Carolina off the 28 Bypass. Ooh, when I get so hungry, Little Cricket, I could almost eat a donkey, Little Cricket. And it, back then, it was called a Little Cricket, but it used to be a Shell gas station that had a restaurant beside of it. And it's like a truck stop in a way. But they done closed up the restaurant part. And so Little Cricket convenience store had taken over the gas station part. The Little Cricket was well known to those in South Carolina. And the 28 Bypass was right off a busy highway. And although some people thought it was dangerous... Tina liked to work, so she brushed off the warnings of family and strangers. That is, until the night that she was robbed and beaten. She was at a, at a convenience store in Anderson on 28 by Pies in Anderson, South Carolina. She was robbed and, and got beat up a little bit. And I lived out of town. I came home for Easter that year, went to her store, and I noticed that she had a, a black eye or beat up a little bit. And she told me what happened. And that was the last time and the only time I got to hug her. After this attack, Tina reevaluated her priorities and asked to switch to day shifts. And she also switched locations. The beating and the robbery had terrified her. For the next month, Tina was on day shifts, but she was desperate to make money while her divorce was pending. And when a co-worker needed their overnight shift covered, she agreed to take it. It would turn out to be the last shift and her last day on earth. June 23rd, 1983, Tina showed up to her overnight shift as a cashier at the Little Cricket convenience store at US 178 near Interstate 85 in Anderson, South Carolina. 
She went about her normal routine, which included taking off her shoes and going barefoot. Friends and coworkers say she hated wearing shoes, and she would slip them off anytime there were no customers in the store. She also brought a flannel shirt to every shift for the times that she had to stock the freezer shelves. As the clock struck midnight and June 23rd became the 24th, Tina Milford's divorce became final. She was officially divorced, and she was starting her new life by finishing off her overnight shift at the Little Cricket. June 24, 1983. Around 1.30 a.m., Tina Milford talked with her mama on the phone as she often did when she got to work. Sometime between then and 3 a.m., something went badly wrong. This particular location was close to the interstate and would often get truckers, late-night travelers, and shift workers popping in for a cup of coffee. At 2.45 a.m., a man came into the Little Cricket to buy coffee and found the store unlocked and abandoned. He saw a pair of brown sandals, a purse, and a makeup bag, and an empty register. He called the police to report his finding. The Tina was supposed to be working that night. He was filling in for someone else at that store because they needed someone to work that night. And Tina needed the money so she could move out. She then had half of her stuff at my parents' house. And she had a mobile home. And so she had uh, was wanting to get it moved. So she was trying to raise, you know, get some money together to do that. So mom and daddy gets a, um, a knock at the door and it's a policeman and they tell him that she was missing. And then I get a call. Uh, they said, have I seen Tina? Because I lived in Florida at the time. And I said, no, mama. And daddy, I said, I haven't seen her because they thought that maybe she might be coming down there to see me. And, you know, I kept questioning. I said, why would she come down there if she had a little girl? But my mother and daddy had the little girl's time. They was babysitting her because Tina was working. They were saying that she wasn't found there, but her shoes was there outside. This is in the middle of summer and hot and all. Her pocketbook was inside of the store, and her shirt was inside the store. She wore a flannel shirt um, to go into the coolers and to stock up. She was missing. June 25, 1983. The headline on the local newspaper read, Store Clerk Feared Kidnapped. And this is when friends and family began to realize that something was definitely wrong. And how strange that she would go missing on the exact day that her divorce was final. Was this a coincidence or a clue? My husband and I at the time, we drove um, all day to get back to Anderson. And um, I, I seen this girl walk down the sidewalk while I was still in Florida. And I looked to my husband and I said, that's Tina. So we turned back around and it wasn't her, but it looked so much like her. It's unbelievable when a tragedy like this happens, how our minds just don't really comprehend what's going on. And in Anne's case, it was playing tricks on her. The police searched the property high and low for signs of Tina. There was nothing. She had simply vanished. Word traveled fast that a young mother was missing and friends and family began searching for Tina. Robberies were not uncommon at convenience stores, but why would someone kidnap her? On June 25, 1983, at 11 a.m., 
As the police investigation went into full swing and the intensity to find Tina grew, two men and a woman went into the woods searching for cans to turn in for money and came across a gruesome finding. There in the woods was Tina's body. She was naked from the waist down with a bullet hole in her skull. Three people were walking in the frontage road off of I-5 and they found her body. I didn't find out until we got here that they had found her. Because in those times, you didn't have cell phones. You know, it takes you a while to go from Florida to South Carolina. She was shot and left Temple. Uh, she was um, just clothed from the waist down. So you can take your imagination from there. And they had to take her in for an autopsy. They had to send it. I'm thinking it was either Columbia or Charleston. I can't remember which one now. And they they identify her through dental records because she was so bloated up. No, she had a close casket because nobody got to see her. And I said, are you sure that's her? They said, yes. Tina Milford's body was left along a dirt road off Elrod Road near Exit 35 in Piedmont, approximately 12 miles from her job at the Little Cricket where she was last seen. She had been shot in the left temple with a 25 caliber pistol at close range. All that was on her body was a Harley-Davidson t-shirt and a ring with a clear stone. It, it, it is a hard decision to, to know what to do next. You wouldn't think that she would got caught up in anything that wasn't legal or was out of the norm or anything like that. But it's, uh, and if you love someone, you do get in those those spells to where you want to believe them and not everybody else tells you that's wrong. You don't know yourself what really happened. You just you just get hearsay from different people. Just kind of um, a wait and see situation. Tina Milford was ripped away from her 18-month-old daughter and a large family that loved her so very much. Questions and accusations swirl. But it is so hard to focus on the why when your heart is shattered and the unimaginable becomes a reality. Tina's ex-husband, Tony, was no stranger to run-ins with the law. He was known to have drug affiliations. And in fact, he would later be arrested and sentenced to 15 years in prison for transporting crack cocaine. It was well known that Tina and Tony's relationship was volatile. So, of course, Tony had a target on his back from the very beginning. Did he come to the funeral? Yes. Oh, gosh, that had to have been hard, too, either way. He was at my mother's house uh, right after the funeral or something like that, and I asked him flat out. I asked him, did you have anything to do with this? And he said he didn't, but he kind of looked away. I was afraid to ask that question and surprised by the answer, wondering what it must feel like to be around someone you think took your sister's life. The abduction and murder of Tina Milford happened in 1983, and there have been no arrests made. But thanks to the Anderson County Sheriff's Office, DNA was collected, and over the years, it has been a promising time capsule for justice for Tina's family. Greg Shore, Anderson County's coroner, offers some insight. I'm Greg Shore, Anderson County coroner. Tina's death happened before I was involved with the coroner's office. I was involved with EMS and worked on the ambulance back in the uh, 70s and 80s. So I do remember Tina's abduction. 
The night that Tina was abducted, she was at work at a convenience store on I-85 in Anderson County. She has a large family, a family that cares about her and loves her and wants to find out what happened to Tina. I think that was the driving force for us to get involved to help the family come up with some answers. During our investigation, we were really trying to focus on the gun and seeing if we could tie that gun to someone else. And we also found in the evidence collection box clothing that was collected at the autopsy in Charleston, South Carolina. Looking at the uh, evidence that was collected by the Sheriff's Department the coroner's office, we found clothing that appeared to have some uh, serious stains on the clothing. And the Sheriff's Department sent that clothing to State Crime Lab, SLED in Columbia, and we were able to identify that there was semen on the clothing. With the new DNA opportunities out there, we have been working to try to uh, get a DNA profile, which has been completed. That's now in uh, CODIS. And we haven't had any hits on that DNA. So our next uh, thought was to try to do a genealogy test on that DNA to see if it is related to someone that is in our list of known possible actors in this abduction and murder. We're hoping uh, through DNA that we will be able to identify uh, those that were involved. We're hoping that uh, this will break the case. I know the family is very anxious about that, and uh, we would certainly like to solve this case. There's been people of interest, but no named suspects. Is that correct? Well, I think everyone that is in our file and those that we have uh, gotten statements from were people that either knew Tina were associated with Tina and her family, and those are the people that have been interviewed in the past. But right now, we don't know who was involved in the abduction and murder of Tina. I mean, we could speculate all day long, but until we get someone to come forward, and, you know, there's someone out there. I mean, many of the folks that were involved uh, back in the 80s when Tina disappeared have passed on. And uh, so our list of known possible witnesses to this are dwindling down quickly. And uh, mm -hmm. as the family, I mean, Tina's mom and dad have passed. And, you know, so, so we're kind of, you know, running behind to catch up and try to get the family the information they want. And I really feel like this case will eventually be solved. I really do. Knowing Tina, she was fault ever who she was with. She had to put up a good fight, but then I don't, as far as I remember, there wasn't any scratchers on her body, so ever who shot her, shot her at close range. And so it wasn't like a random shot. But my mother and father's name was Leon and Danny Hunter, because my father was a bookkeeper and he worked at a cost accountant at the local meal, but uh, they knew a lot of people. And those people still these days comes up to me and saying, we're praying for your family because we know it's such a hard thing for your family to go through. And you um, keep asking me, is there been any kind of new things going on with it or whatever? I said, no, I haven't heard anything.
we just keep our fingers crossed. And we can say it out there that there is DNA on there. And we're just trying to get the information off of that DNA. And anybody that's with um, genealogy DNA, this would be very helpful to try and catch this person that did this thing to my sister so our family can have closure. It would mean everything to me. It would mean that she would be at peace and know that we we know who did this to her, get a conviction of the person that did this. If anyone knows anything, please tell someone or let someone know about it. This has been 37 years ago. And that's been a long time, and a lot of people's memories are foggy. Sometimes we have memories that comes up in our day-in-day life that we didn't think that this was connected or this wasn't a connection to this, but it is. And so if you don't, th- if you think that there's just a little bit of a connection somewhere, or if you know something, Call me or get in touch with me some way or the Sheriff's Office or Crime Stoppers of Anderson County. We'd be more than glad to sit down with you if you want to talk face-to-face. But don't want to do this just for me. I want to do this for Tina's children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. Anne has certainly been brave and has really towed the line for her entire family in search of Tina Milford's killer. And since Tina's death, Anne has really had to stand alone. She's lost so many in her family that were so dear to her, including her mom and her dad. Her dad, James Leon Hunter, passed in 2002. And after his death, Anne found that her dad had actually written poems and letters and memory of Tina almost daily since her death. And today we'll close out with one of his own poems from James Leon Hunter. Your world ends as the nightmare begins when the lawman speaks. Rest in peace, Tina Milford Hunter. Thank you for being with us and listening to Tina Milford's story of her life and and her death. So basically, you guys, wrapping this case, you know, we're going to go over the list of suspects as usual. Lori and I will kind of take you down the path. This one is not too complicated. Let's just start with, you know, the primary suspect, which, of course, is her ex-husband, Tony Milford. Um, So, Lori, both you and I, I think, as Anne had said, Everybody thinks that he has something to do with it. Now, again, like the coroner said, there was DNA that was found on her. And they ran that through CODIS and there was not a match. Right. And that's where I have a problem with it because Tony, as we know, has been arrested and has served time. I think he was sentenced to 15 years for drug trafficking. And then his DNA would be in CODIS and then therefore there would be a match. Correct. So... He is not a direct match for the DNA that was found on Tina. So period, point blank. But it doesn't mean that he's not responsible some way or another. And again, being responsible, people that are working at the sheriff's office or whoever we've spoken with, I appreciate that they're always very careful. 
you know, saying or going on emotion because, of course, that's what they are not supposed to do. Thank God that they really look to science and they really look for hard facts. So they are definitely have pointed out that there is no evidence that has Tony in or near or in any way responsible. However, however, now, so he has, you know, answered some deputies questions and all of that. And then he said he would take a lie detector test. But then after consulting with an attorney, he decided not to. Yeah. I mean, you know, what's complicated is I would even say six months ago, you know, if you heard somebody doing that, majority of people would be like, oh, you know, he's guilty. But nowadays, a lot of people sympathize with the fact that somebody would say, I talked to my attorney. Why? Why would I do it? I mean, and again, there used to be some, I think think a little bit a sense of community a little sense of common decency to take that to give you know to let everybody know that you absolutely weren't involved but I think times have changed and people feel comfortable saying just no Mm -hmm. exactly so I mean but just Jen the coincidence it just so happened to be the day her divorce was finalized and everybody brings that up the day that her divorce was finalized is when they found her body so she went missing You know, um, she went in for her shift late night on the 24th. She was working an overnight shift. So at midnight, it turned the 24th. That was the day that her divorce was final. She spoke with her mom and she was also last seen at around 1.30 a.m. And that's it. And then they think that she was killed sometime around 3 a.m. And she was taken 12 miles away. And here's the other thing. This is about Tina. This isn't about Tony in terms of, you know, you and I, this is what this podcast is. We want to make sure the focus stays on the victim so we don't harp too much on this. But he was definitely involved in drugs and he was definitely had nefarious characters around him. So did he maybe just a scenario, but, you know, you and I have talked about this. Did he maybe tell them, hey, She's she's working an overnight shift, which she hasn't done. It's an easy target. You know, when you're involved with drugs, robbery, larceny, that all goes hand in hand. Most people feel he had something to do with it. A gut sometimes just tells us something, you know, but you need evidence in order to have a conviction. Right. So so DNA, thank goodness, is changing and they are making progress with that every day. It feels like every minute they are. So we alluded to the fact that the DNA found on Tina is somewhat like a time capsule. So even though they ran it through CODIS and they didn't find a match, they're not done, right? What are, what's the update on that, Lori? The DNA, there's been other types of DNA testing that they can do to make genealogy matches, figure out the suspect's nationality, you know, all kinds of things. So he just left it at that. They're having it tested. And I don't know about you, but I could tell Greg Shore sounded a little confident in our conversation there that he feels like they're going to be onto something very soon. Right. No, I absolutely heard that, too. And he did say that they are currently taking the DNA back to run further DNA tests. So I think that there's there's something there. And then our prayers are just with answers and wherever those lead. I think that that's how Anne feels. But, you know, there was also at one point in time. They had talked about a serial killer could possibly be involved. However, they said they went down that path and they don't believe it because at that same location years before, only two years before, 1981, that's only two years before, yes. Another store clerk had been shot and killed in that same location. See, that's that's pretty scary. However, that person's killer was led back to a serial killer And he was since put to death. 
Now, something that people have told us I think is interesting to note is that this location is close to a busy highway. So people can, you all, you guys know, you know, you're traveling and then there's that little convenience store off in the country. And, you know, Tina, which some people say was outside sweeping, they found the broom outside. And so was she out there sweeping and somebody randomly saw a great opportunity to get some money? Who knows why it? they took it far enough to rape and, and kill her. But that's true. It could just be completely random knowing that he can jump back on the highway and be gone. And back then they didn't have surveillance cameras. It's a shame she was working alone by herself. But that's the truth of it all. It's so sad that she wasn't even supposed to be working that night. Right. I mean, there's a lot of weird things. I mean, a month prior, she was beaten and robbed. And, you know, oh, my gosh. I mean, I would never go back. But you're also talking about, I think it's important that we put ourselves in her shoes. There's not a lot of opportunity for her around there with an 18-month-old daughter getting a divorce. The little cricket was what she had available to her. And the fact is, she needed money. So... When a coworker said, I need an overnight shift covered, she did it. And it turned out to be in just an awful, awful decision that landed her on the side of the road. As always, we'd like to thank the friends and family that have spoken with us and shared this memory with us in hopes that we can get the word out. Anybody knows anything, the family is begging. There's so many people that have since passed. And Anne really feels that it's on her to bring justice for Tina, for her parents and for her siblings that have since passed. And so we just ask if you know something to please come forward. Right. And any little thing, and especially if you've been afraid to before in the past, if you have any information about this case, you can call the Anderson Area Crime Stoppers at 1-888-CRIME-SC. As always, we'd like to thank Anne, her sister, for speaking with us and sharing her memories. And Greg Shore, thank you for the interview. He is the current coroner there in Anderson County. And we would just ask that if you know something to please come forward, please give this family some hope and some closure. And thank you for joining us on this episode of Dealing Justice. Like us on Facebook at Cold Case Playing Cards for all the latest information on this case and other cards we'll be featuring on future episodes. Dealing Justice is written, produced, and hosted by Jennifer Dubasak and myself, Lori Jennings. Our sound design is by John Schaub. Our executive consultant is the Cold Case Playing Cards creator, retired FDLE special agent, Tommy Ray. If you want to help us spread the word about these victims' stories, please subscribe and leave us a positive review on your favorite podcast app. And tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you for being a part of this, and please join us next time on Dealing Justice. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.